Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. The Retroist podcast has been described as a nostalgia podcast or a retro podcast, mostly because it shares old stuff in every episode with people. At the beginning of every show, I like to share a memory or tell a story related to the subject of the show. It helps me to remember why I value the subject that I'm about to talk about, and I also hope by sharing it, people will think of their own stories, their own connections to these subjects, because without memory, without experience, there is no nostalgia. So very often after I've released a show, I will hear from people who will share their memories of the subject, and I love hearing from them. I love knowing why something was special to people. Now those are often messages just for me, and I'm always a little sad that they're not shared with a wider audience, but I wanted to maybe change that. So as this season of shows has ended, I reached out to supporters of the Retroist and asked them if they would like to participate in a season-ending podcast where they share some of their own memories about subjects we talked about. I have some fun memories to share with you from some great people. So without further ado, let's start the show. Our first story is from a longtime Retroist contributor. He has contributed to both podcasts and the Retroist blog, Vincent Bray. Vince is going to share some firsthand experience with the CED, Select Division, both back when it was released and much later on. In 1984, I was in the seventh grade and in the market for an RCA Select Division player. I consider the CED an amazing technology that would fulfill my dreams of watching movies at home, and the Select Division was the right choice for many reasons. First, one of my friends had a player, and I had a chance to see this technical marvel up close. Sure, the discs occasionally skipped or stuttered and had to be flipped halfway through the movie, but those seemed like minor inconveniences. Second, our local video store had a huge selection of discs. In fact, this particular rental store seemed to go all in on CEDs and Betamax, so I knew I'd have a ready supply of movies in addition to those I envisioned purchasing. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the players were relatively affordable. In the 1984 fall-winter edition of the Sears catalog, their branded CED player was offered at the low price of $239. Discs were only $19. In comparison, their entry-level Betamax player cost $320 and the low-end VHS player ran $470, 
entirely out of my price range. So that sealed it. The CED was the solution for me. When RCA started advertising free discs with the purchase of a player, I was only a few dollars shy of being able to afford one. I'd been saving my paper route money for more than a year, and I was nearly ready to take the plunge. And then, my neighbor got a gorgeous silver top-loading VHS machine. It played movies flawlessly. No skips or stutters. No mid-movie interruptions as you flip the disc. Plus, they even had a blank tape to record TV shows. And then they had another, and another. Soon, they had an entire wall filled with carefully labeled tapes of TV shows. Hours and hours of content they could play whenever they wanted, just for the price of a blank tape. At that point, it didn't matter that I couldn't afford a VHS player. I knew the Selectivision would never live up to my raised expectations. I didn't end up buying one. Well, that's not entirely true. 30 years later, I came across a player in discs and saw my chance to finally give this technology a try. But between the old stylus and scratchy discs, I wasn't able to get it working. I donated it all to a collector who knew much more about the technology than I did. Maybe he's out there right now, watching the discs, using a new stylus, enjoying the opportunity to get up mid-movie and stretch his legs while he flips the disc. Thanks, Vince. Next up is Josh from Ottawa, Ontario, who shares his memories of the cult classic film The Wizard. I was a kid in the trenches of the glory days of the Sega-Nintendo Wars. So, I have fond memories of a movie like The Wizard thanks to growing up in that era. In the 1980s, like pretty much everyone, I wanted a Nintendo for Christmas. My dad did his best, but he couldn't get his hands on one. Instead, I got a Sega Master System. Because I was a good kid, there were no Christmases ruined temper tantrums. I was thankful, and I became a Sega fan, tried and true. Even with all my Sega loyalty, Nintendo was an unavoidable juggernaut. Every other kid had one. I was even gifted a Nintendo Power Magazine subscription. Amongst all those not-wasted hours of playing video games, news of an unheard-of cinematic video game crossover called The Wizard hit my radar. A competition adventure, but instead of martial arts action like the Karate Kid, these characters were playing video games. I was quite intrigued by the video game icon-filled movie poster for The Wizard that I must have seen in comic books, and the trailer was in rotation during Saturday morning cartoons. There were movies like Tron and The Last Starfighter preceding The Wizard. It was a different time, though. Geek pop culture was not in abundance, so every little bit of it was something to pay attention to. For some reason, I didn't see The Wizard on the big screen. I have a recollection that it might have hit movie theaters in my hometown very briefly. Even having not seen it, I distinctly remember having in-depth conversations about various important topics regarding The Wizard. I heard that it was one of the greatest flops of all time, that it was going to ruin the chance of other video game movies being made ever again. It's funny to track such rumors and gossip well before the internet kicked in, like how Christian Slater only did the movie because he made a deal to get Nintendo games for life. I swear that I had this info come my way from multiple unrelated sources. There's no evidence to this being true. If I ever meet Christian Slater, I'll be sure to ask. The most common statement made about The Wizard is that Nintendo financed it to promote Super Mario Bros. 3. They did not. And the virtual reality futuristic power glove that became an infamous misstep did not in fact almost bankrupt Nintendo. It was an officially licensed product, but Nintendo was not involved in the design or release. Despite attending many Comic-Cons and Geek Gatherings, I have yet to try out the Power Glove in real life. When I finally watched The Wizard, it was thanks to the neighborhood video store. The terrible reviews and lack of buzz didn't matter. Finding a bit of obscure missed treasure in the new release section would get the same reaction from my friends and I that was deserving of movies of a much higher caliber. Even though The Wizard might not be on countless best-of lists, it nonetheless holds a special place in my geek heart. 
The wizard will always be tied to memories of those Kodachrome late 1980s, early 1990s, grade 9 high school days when you had all the time in the world to delve into role-playing games, spend way too much time at the video store, watch a movie that hardly anyone else was anticipating, and then play Super Mario Bros. 3 until dawn. Thanks, Josh. What you're about to hear next is a little unusual. It's not someone sharing a memory now, but actually sharing a memory via an audio time capsule. Alan Bowers had a recording of himself as a child discussing G.I. Joe, and he was nice enough to share it. Thanks, Alan. Next up is Walt Keegan. Walt has some great memories of G.I. Joe, including a very special, and if you're a G.I. Joe fan, very memorable Christmas gift he got one year. I started collecting G.I. Joes in 1982. I know this because I remember that I had the straight-armed versions of everyone. Straight-armed Stalker. Straight-armed Snake Eyes. And when the Swivel Arms came out in 83 with the version 2s, I kind of needed more of them. If you don't remember which Joe was my first, I think it was the, like, three packs from the Sears catalog which were my first. So I think I got all of the original of uh, series one of GI Joe's from the Sears catalog. And I believe like many others that the vamp was the first vehicle. You know, I was lucky. I was, I was an only child and my parents, when I liked something, they kind of went all out and said, Hey, he likes this. Let's go with this. So GI Joe's, I collected everything. I had every figure, almost every vehicle and and uh, accessory hit. And when I was growing up, we had a, a porch on the side of the house that was turned in my toy, toy porch. It was where I could keep all my toys. They could stay on the floor. My battles could, I could end my battles in mid battle and didn't have to pick everything up. I'd only have to pick it up if the battle made its way out into the kitchen or living room. Or, but this toy porch was mine. I could leave it a, a mess if I wanted to. I had like a, uh, a best friend of mine. We would go to Toys R Us a couple of times a week with our parents. And if there was a new ver uh, new G.I. Joe figures out, we would call each other from the payphone at Toys R Us and say, hey, the, the new figures are out. Get, get, get down here. Get down here. And then and we'd both run to our parents and like, get us down. We, there's more figures, new figures. And we'd go down to Toys R Us and they wouldn't even take them out of the boxes. The boxes would be on the floor in front of the G.I. Joe section. And we would just pull the new figures out and look at the back and see, see all the new figures that, that weren't out yet. Oh, these are all new. In 1985, G.I. Joe came out with what would be the ultimate and even to this day, the ultimate playset, the USS Flag, seven feet of aircraft carrier G.I. Joe goodness. I don't even remember adding that to my Christmas list. $109 in 1985 money. I didn't do the conversion, but it's a lot. That's a lot of money. 85, my parents were separated. 
I would open up presents on Christmas Eve. So I remember my father coming over and, you know, bringing the presents in and I'd open up the presents and, you know, everything was open. And then he just kind of went, oh, there's one more thing I forgot. So he came out, brought in this giant box. And I'm thinking, I don't know what could be in there other than what I would hope it would be in there. And I ripped the corner off and there it was the corner of the USS flag. And I just kind of remember falling over going, Oh my God. Oh my God. And at that point it would not fit in the toy porch. So I got moved down into the basement and the USS flag was the main attraction of my good guy section with my Autobots, my GI Joes. And it was glorious. Thanks Walt. Next up is Christopher Tupa. If you have seen the retros podcast shared on the internet, you've often seen really cool artwork attached to the episode. That art is provided by Christopher Tupa, and he has done it on and off for many years. It's been great to have him back this season. Christopher is going to share some of his memories with encountering the TV show The Wizard and how he would come back to the show later on. So back when I was a kid, I briefly saw maybe one episode or even just a commercial or a clip on TV, and all I remembered was there was a, a little person that went into a basement, and it was full of toys and inventions. And at the time, I thought that the little person was Warwick Davis from Willow. As I grew up, I could never remember or, or find out what that clip that was in the back of my brain was from. And so as I grew older and the internet came along, I could do some research and lo and behold, I discovered, after much, much research, that that clip was from the Wizard TV show. At the time, I lucked out and someone had recorded all the episodes on VHS tapes, burned them to DVDs, and was selling them online, which I promptly bought and watched, and came to love that show. When I watched it, the housekeeper that was in the show, her name was Tilly, she's super fun. The main character, uh, Simon McKay, is so charming. He's probably the most upbeat character I've ever seen in a TV show. So positive. The uh, surprise for me was Howie from The Fall Guy was in the show. And in The Wizard, he's a much stronger, well put together character. Kind of a tough guy. He looks after Simon. And it's such a fun show. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's a product of its time. Definitely super fun where no one really gets hurt. No consequences. There's always a moral or a lesson to be taught. To be honest, that's why I like a lot of the shows from the 80s. They're fun and lighthearted. And yeah, they're not super realistic. But uh, if I want realism, I can just watch the news and be depressed. So I love watching the old shows. They're just fun. My favorite memory, though, of The Wizard is that time right when the internet was coming along when you could still discover things that you remembered from your youth and you just didn't quite know what it was or a toy that you vaguely remembered. And then you got that aha moment where you discovered it and found it. Thanks, Christopher. I did quite a few episodes on G.I. Joe, so we have another great memory about G.I. Joe from Adam Strange. For five years of prime childhood, Joe and I lived in the same world. It was the 80s, at the waning of the Cold War, when Reagan's zeal to crush both communism and government regulation catalyzed the mythology I'd carry with me for the rest of my life. G.I. Joe wasn't just my favorite toy when I was 10. It was the zeitgeist. My brother and I found the figures first, at a small discount store in Miami. The first miniseries hadn't aired yet, and I didn't regularly buy comics, so lacking any context, it was all about their look. Stalker, the Black Ranger in green camo suit with beret and submachine gun, became mine, while my brother claimed Grunt, 
a modern-day version of the Green Army Man, complete with a realistic, if tiny, M16. We'd had Star Wars figures before, and adventure people. A legion of Playmobil, cowboys, knights, and pirates. He-Man with Grayskull and all the accoutrements. But these new ones came wrapped in star-spangled branding and the soft patriotism that we breathed in like air. They were characters in a war comic, as colorful as superheroes, hailing from across the country, backgrounds as diverse as their uniforms, each with their own story as recorded on their file card. But it's the Sunbow Marvel cartoon that left the most indelible impression. The animation design, the stellar voice cast, the energetic music, and the inventive plots with their generous mix of contemporary military intrigue and sci-fi weirdness. It still holds up today. Unfortunately, I can only speak for myself. My daughter wears Spider-Man t-shirts, carries a Star Wars lunchbox, and can hum the Banana Splits theme song. But G.I. Joe has been a no-go for her. Joe is of the time when soldiers, spies, and ninjas were culturally cool, and calling yourself a real American hero was generally uncontroversial. For me, it's more personal still. When we played with the Joes or watched their adventures, we saw men and women, white and black, Asian and Latino, united by their love for a country that they all called home. This country is also my forever home, but my immediate roots are in another land. My parents were Cuban in Cold War casualties, and as they could attest, the good guys didn't always win. America was their gift to me, and G.I. Joe, like Superman before, stood for truth, justice, and the American way. Since I was a kid, I've always felt privileged and proud to be included in that. While I can't call it good to grow up with the sword of nuclear war dangling overhead, G.I. Joe offered us the hope that we'd win if we hung together and acted heroically. There is a lot of good in that. But maybe, as all of us who care this much about 80s cartoons, old toys, and the attendant nostalgia know, sometimes our love is born from the most selfish and wonderful reason of all because it came to us when we were young. Thanks, Adam. That was great. Makes me want to revisit G.I. Joe again. Finally, we're going to end on a veteran, well, two veterans of the Retroist podcast and podcasting world, Vic Sage and The Projectionist. So we're going to go visit the haunted drive-in. Vic is nice enough to share his memories of the film Reanimator and his meeting the star of the film, Jeffrey Combs. You couldn't call or write a note. I was busy pushing bodies around, as you well know. I know what a note say, then. Cat dead. Details later. It would appear that everything is running properly tonight at the Haunted Drive-In Projectionist. A pretty good turnout for Reanimator, if I do say so myself. Naturally, Victor. Our loyal patrons are quick to act on the chance to see the 1985 horror comedy on the big screen, where it belongs. Yes? It's hard to argue that the movie doesn't look much better on the drive-in screen than when I first saw it, which was on VHS. One of my first rentals, as a matter of fact. I can remember my father was hesitant to... Oh, hey! The recording light on the control panel is on. Looks like it's time to record my segment for the Retroist special. Blast it all! The Retroist is spying on us once again, Serge. How does he do it? 
Simmer down, man. I was invited by the Retroist to share a memory about 1985's Reanimator for the new podcast special. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you talk about the film, too. No, thank you, Victor. I am going to go busy myself elsewhere. <clears throat> well, friends, I happen to be a huge fan of Reanimator, as well as the character of Herbert West. No doubt many of you are already aware of how awesome this movie is, thanks to the late and great Stuart Gordon, who was able to masterfully blend both horror and extremely dark comedy into a true cult classic, thanks in no small part to his talented cast, made up of the likes of Barbara Crampton, Bruce Abbott, David Gale, Robert Sampson, and of course, the esteemed Jeffrey Combs, who steals practically every scene he's in as Herbert West, the titular reanimator. In fact, I thought you might like to hear about how I was fortunate enough to meet Jeffrey Combs for the first time. This would have been back around 1993, as at that time, I was employed by a local video store. I was helping a guest with a late fee when he pointed to a standee and casually mentioned that his brother was featured in the movie. I glanced over at the standee, which was for the 1992 sci-fi action film Fortress. Then, my eyes focused on the guest's last name, Combs. My eyes grew wide with excitement, and I perhaps too excitedly blurted out, I want to shake your hand. You're the brother of Jeffrey Combs. I'm not sure what startled him more, the fact that I knew of his brother or how excited I was to make his acquaintance. He was literally taken aback, but started to laugh as I told him of how Reanimator was one of the first movies I had ever seen on VHS back in the day, and how I was a huge fan of his brother's work, just listing off films like From Beyond, Bride of Reanimator, his appearance in The Flash, or Dr. Mordred, to name just a few. Before he left, he made a promise that the next time his brother was in town to visit, he would be sure to bring him by the video store so I could meet him. Flash forward many months later, and while I was busy getting a stack of returned VHS tapes in order to go back out on the shelves, there is a loud thump as someone plops down their own stack of VHS tapes to rent, all of them featuring Jeffrey Combs. I looked up from that pile to see Jeffrey Combs and his brother standing there with huge smiles on their faces, and time just stopped. One of my fellow co-workers offered to ring them up, but I told him, maybe too forcibly, that I had it covered. I would like to say I didn't geek out on the actor, but that would be a complete lie. Much like I had with his brother, I shared my story of how I first caught Reanimator, and what a big fan I was of his work. I can tell you that Jeffrey Combs took it all in stride, and was more than gracious to not only let me prattle on, but share some interesting stories of his time on film sets, etc. Perhaps in total, he and his brother were in the video store for, well, it couldn't be any more than 10 minutes, but it felt like a lifetime. Before he left, though, Jeffrey Combs had me jot down my home address, saying he would send me something when he got back home. And he was true to his word, as a couple of weeks later, a large manila envelope arrived addressed to me. Within was a production photograph from Reanimator of Herbert West holding up that syringe full of reanimation fluid. Written in Sharpie was, Vic, thanks for being a big fan. Herbert lives. Jeffrey Combs. In fact, that photograph is still hanging up in my house, a treasured keepsake. Friends, I can see by the clock on the haunted drive-in projection booth that my time is nearly up, but I'll leave you with this. Like I said earlier, this was the first time I got to meet Jeffrey Combs. If you bump into me in the future, I might tell you about the other two times.
Thanks to everyone for sharing their memories. If you have memories that you would like to share, feel free to email me, contact me through the website or on social media. You could also come by and join the Retroist Discord. I love to talk to people and hear what they're interested in, and especially hear how they are connected to things that I might have talked about on the show. And many times, people's stories are inspiring me to new shows. I'd like to thank everyone who participated in this podcast. You can follow a lot of these people online, and you should. Start off with Vince Bray. You can follow Vince on Twitter. He's at B-R-A-Y-V-T. You can follow Walt at Instagram and Twitter. He's at WJK Creations. You can follow Alan Bowers on Twitter. He's at WDW Manimal. You can often find Christopher Tupa's work on The Retroist whenever a podcast comes out. But if you want more Christopher Tupa, you should drop by his website. That's at ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A dot com. Thanks to Adam Strange. Adam Strange is an attorney and writer who lives in the Boston area. If you want to contact Adam, you can email him at spaceranger74 at gmail.com or contact him on the Retroist Discord at Adam Strange. Thanks to Adam for reminding me to mention the Discord. Thanks to Josh. Josh wrote the DC Superhero Girls episode Flash Forward Flashback, which you can watch on YouTube, and co-wrote the five-issue comic miniseries Damned Cursed Children from Sourcepoint Press, so check that out. If you want more of Josh online, he is the co-owner of the Mayfair Theater in Ottawa. You could follow them on Twitter at Mayfair Theater, and make sure you listen to the Mayfair Theater podcast. Finally, I'd like to thank a longtime friend of mine, Vic Sage. You can follow... Vic Sage online. He's on Twitter at VicSage2005. You could also search for Pop Culture, Retrorama, Diary of an Arcade Employee, or the Saturday Frights podcasts. All of them are excellent, high quality, and very entertaining. Thanks for everyone who's been listening to the show. I encourage you to drop by the website at Retroist.com to support the show at Patreon.com slash Retroist. And if you join that, you'll get access to the Discord member-only episodes, outtakes, scans, a bunch of great stuff. This has been a very fun season to put together, and I will be right back at it very soon. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Hey Vic, projectionist, are you guys ready to record? Hello? Hello? This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.